We are in a series called Love Your Neighbor. Last week's message was a tough one. It was titled, Love Your Neighbor, Including Your Enemies. That was a tough one, right? I kind of want to move past that now, but I'm not going to. We're going to camp out on it. I'm going to expand on that. You know, the, you know, Christianity means to glorify God by becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Jesus loved his enemies. He's called us to become more like Christ. You know, we think of all these other things that Jesus did that we like, but when it comes to loving our enemies, we want to give ourselves a pass on that one. So I want, you, I want to challenge you. I want you to pray that God would give you an open heart, that he'd give you an open mind, uh, that, that you'd be willing to be humble enough to wrestle with this and that you'd ask God to give you strength to wrestle with this because it's a tough one, another tough one. Our passage is from Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 42. But before I read it, I want to kind of give you uh, the bigger picture, to give you a little bit of context so it becomes more meaningful to you. In the same chapter earlier, in verse 12, it says, One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he, call, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated as apostles. So Jesus is in the mountains, and it was in the mountains where revolutionaries gathered their leaders together and planned the revolution. And then Jesus chooses his lieutenants, 12 of them, like the 12 tribes of Israel. But now Jesus is forming a new nation. Then it comes time for them to come down the mountain. Verse 17 of chapter 6 says, Jesus went down with them, stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples were there and a great number of people from all over. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because Power was coming from him and healing them all. Can you imagine that? What that must have been like? What we see here as this story unfolds, as the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they all unfold and tell us the narrative of Jesus of Nazareth and his life, what you learn is that Jesus is the most radical revolutionary who ever lived. All other, you know what all other revolutionaries in this world do? All other revolutionaries in this world try to make an adjustment to the status quo. Jesus does not show up to make an adjustment. Jesus shows up to turn the, the foundational values of this world upside down. I mean, in verse 20, he says things like, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. That is totally opposite of what this world tries to sell you, isn't it? It's upside down compared to the world. And then Jesus tells us why his followers are like this. In verse 35, he says, then your reward will be great 
and you will be sons of the Most High because the Most High is kind to the ungrateful. The Most High is kind to the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Jesus says that his followers are like this, not because they got to white knuckle it and grind it out and keep a new set of rules and then they can pat themselves on the back when they, you know, accomplish it every now and then when they feel like it. No, Jesus' followers are like this because their father is like this. It's wrapped up in who they are, in their identity. What the world says is what you do or not do determines who you are. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to your faith in, in Jesus Christ and your identity is wrapped up in him, who you are determines what you do. And because you are like your father, because you are identified in, in, in Christ, you will be like Christ. Followers of Jesus who live this way, live this way because they have experienced the Father's mercy. They saw their need for the Father's mercy and they saw that God gave them mercy. Followers of Jesus who live this way, who love their enemies even, the reason they love is because they, uh, they have experienced God's unrestrained love. They have experienced God's absurd generosity. They recognize their need for unrestrained love. They recognize their need for God's absurd generosity and that God was happy to give it to them and they're so overwhelmed with gratitude and it just blows their minds that, that their only natural response is joy and to share that love and their grace and the generosity with other people. You cannot muster this up on your own. The only way that you can live this way is if you know that you were desperate for God's grace and you saw that he gave it to you because he loves you. Now, we come to our text. Luke chapter 6, verse 37 through 42. It's on the back of the insert. You can follow along. Jesus is still talking about this crazy idea of loving our enemies. And he breaks it down to show us what loving our enemies looks like and what our lives will look like if we become more like Jesus. And it says this, beginning in verse 37 of chapter 6 in the book of Luke. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Verse 39. Jesus also told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, 
Let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Listening to the words of Jesus, how he taught, what he said, and what he did, and the way he lived his life, you see that there has never, ever been a revolutionary like Jesus of Nazareth. No one has ever been as radical as Jesus. Jesus did not show up to adjust the status quo. He came to flip it upside down, and he calls us to join him in his revolution. He calls you, each of you, to join King Jesus, to join him in his revolution. Now, this raises a bunch of questions, right? We're just going to look at three. And the first question we'll tackle, it's, it's on your insert there. First question is this. What does Jesus' revolution look like? Now, I'm going to camp out here on this one for longer than the following two. And you can see the blanks that you can fill in as, as we go along. The question is, what does Jesus' revolution look like? Well, let me put it this way. Jesus' revolution is an invasion of a love that is so excessive that it doesn't make sense to this world. Jesus' revolution is an invasion of a love that is so excessive that it does not make sense to this world. Okay, let's test this a little bit, all right? Because that sounds good, right? <laughs> Jesus' love, it's so great, it doesn't even make sense. Let me, let's, let's see how much we, we like this. And if, God's, if we like that Jesus has called us to be like him. Think about the kindest thing you'd like someone else to do for you. Think about the most generous, loving, the kindest thing that somebody else could do for you. Now do that for your enemy. We like it until we get there, to that point, right? And you do it not because you have to or because you want to look good or, or, or because you want to make them feel guilty or, or you want to make them feel like inferior to you, but because your heart is so filled with the love of God that you can't help it, right? That right there is the standard and nothing else, nothing less. And Jesus breaks this down for us. He says, here are four things involved with the revolution that I am calling you to. And the first one is this, if you're taking notes. Jesus' revolution involves not judging. Let me explain that. Because there, there are two ways to look, look at this, two meanings for that word. When Jesus says in verse 37, do not judge, he is not saying don't discern between what is good and bad. He's not saying that, right? He wants you to use good judgment and to have discernment between what is good and bad. He's not saying don't be discerning because he says, he goes on to say, remove the speck from your brother's eye, right? In other words, in love, help them change. 
And what, so what he does mean is that we are not to sit in prideful, self-righteous judgment of others, thinking that they will be changed if we just relentlessly criticize and shame them. Do you know that most people think that they will change somebody else if they relentlessly criticize them and shame them? Most people think that. We see it all the time. All the time. Now, I try real hard to not be critical. But then I get critical of critical people for being critical. And I try real hard to not be judgmental. But then I become judgmental of judgmental people for being judgmental. You see how easy that happens to us? Deep down, we believe that criticism and judgmentalism are necessary. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. But we do. And then we lose our loving opportunity to loving, I mean, to lose our opportunity to lovingly help someone change because whether you realize it or not, we're too busy loving ourselves. Meaning, we're too busy making ourselves feel better because, you know, I just got to get this off my chest. I just got to vent. They need to know. Right? And it's not really about loving them or helping them. It's about helping yourself. Second, Jesus' revolution involves not condemning. When Jesus goes on in verse 37 to say, do not condemn, he's saying, do not declare somebody guilty, lock them up, and throw away the key. To condemn someone is to write them off as a hopeless case. And here's what's crazy. Here's what happens more than we'd like to admit. Sometimes we do that even with the people that we love. Maybe they're people we love dearly. Maybe it's our own children. We expected more of them, but now they bring shame onto us and make us look bad. And then it totally changes the way you treat your children. There's a pastor and an author named Jack Miller. Um, he was my mentor's mentor. Jack Miller died from cancer, but not before God used him to bring a, a, a movement of, 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 of bringing churches back to this idea of transforming grace. So Jack Miller's daughter, her name is Barbara. Barbara went off to college, and then she went off the deep end. She started living high, drunk, and, and hooking up, and she pushed away her family. She pushed away her friends. She pushed away God. And Jack Miller said that when he would pray for his daughter, Barbara, he had this mental image of Barbara as a rebellious, hopeless mess. And that affected the way that he treated her, as a rebellious, hopeless mess. But then he realized that if he was going to help her, he needed to change the way that he saw her, that he needed to see her as God sees her. And he asked God to help him see his daughter Barbara as how she would be in Christ. And so he began to pray in faith. 
And that started the way, that started to change the way that, that he treated her. And it had a profound impact on the relationship and his influence in his daughter's life. God used that. And she ended up marrying her boyfriend who became a pastor. And she helped her dad write a book called Come Back Barbara. And or she just was willing to kind of like be an open book about the mess that she lived and how God transformed her life. And then that book went on to help encourage and change and transform other people by God's grace. This book was her story of God's transforming grace through the truth and the love of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says to his followers, do not judge, do not condemn, but he doesn't stop there. He says, forgive. So that's your next your next subpoint there. Jesus' revolution involves forgiven, forgiving. Jesus says it's not enough. It's not enough to just not judge. It's not enough to just not condemn. Jesus calls you to a love of proactive reconciliation, proactive forgiveness. So, and I don't know, I think I was about 18. 1990, that's when I first started paying attention to the news. I didn't care before that. I started listening to the news in the 90s, and there was a well-documented court proceeding back then concluded, this court proceeding conducted by South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And it was an effort to deal with the crimes and the atrocities that were committed under apartheid there in South Africa. And this one particular incident became well known around the world. An elderly South African woman stood listening in the court proceeding. He was listening to white police officers acknowledge and confess, admit to their atrocities. And one particular officer, Officer Vanderbrock, admitted that along with others, he had shot her 18-year-old son and that he and others partied while they burned the son's body, turning it over and over on the fire until it was reduced to nothing but ashes. And Officer Van de Brock then admitted that eight years later, he and others returned to seize her husband. And she was forced to watch her husband be tied up onto a wood pile have gasoline poured on him, and his body was set on fire until he was totally consumed. And the last words that she heard her husband say was, forgive them. So now then, Officer Vanderbrock awaited judgment. And the commission there in the courthouse asked the woman what she wanted. I want three things, she calmly said. I want Mr. Vanderbrock to take me to the place where they burn my husband's body. I would like to gather up the dust and give him a decent burial. His head down, Vanderbrock nodded in agreement. Second, Mr. Vanderbrock took my family away from me, and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. Third, 
I would like Mr. Vanderbrock to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. I would like to embrace him so he can know my forgiveness is real. As the elderly woman was led across the courtroom, Vanderbrock was so overwhelmed that he fainted. This was in all the papers. I mean, he, he could not believe it. And neither could anybody else in that courtroom. And with tears streaming down their faces, they all spontaneously broke out singing a song. They probably sang a million times, but now it was real. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Not cheap grace, not shallow grace. Amazing grace. Jesus says, that is the revolution. It's about forgiving people who have hurt you deeply. That doesn't mean giving up on, on justice. We need justice in this world. But you also have to, you have to forgive. If you hold on to bitterness, it will destroy you. Fourth, Jesus says, the revolution involves giving. Jesus calls you to be generous, to give generously. Not to just people you like or people you think that earned it, but even to your enemies. A few years ago, again in the news, a man named Brian Nichols forced his way into Ashley Smith's apartment at gunpoint, tied her up, threw her in the bathtub. Ashley was a Christian who was struggling with meth addiction. And she treated her enemy who broke into her apartment, she treated him as a dearly loved and respected friend. The writer of Time Magazine, again with worldwide distribution, a writer named Andrew Sullivan wrote an essay about this incident that was titled, when grace arrives unannounced. It takes a couple minutes, but hang in there and listen with me. He writes this. We latch on to this story, not just because it's a, a riveting end to a high-stakes manhunt. We find ourselves transfixed and uplifted by the sordid ordinariness of it all. He was an alleged rapist and murderer. She was tied up in a bathtub, clinging to the wreckage of a life that was barely afloat. One was a monster, the other a woman unable to care for her five-year-old looking for cigarettes in the dark. And out of that came something, well, beautiful. He saw his purpose to serve God in prison, to turn his life around, even as it may have been saturated in the blood and pain of others. And she saw her purpose to make that happen. These two people were not saints. Grace arrives unannounced in lives that least expect 
or deserve it. I say that as a believer, Andrew Sullivan writes. The crimes Nichols is suspected of are inexcusable. The serenity of Smith is close to inexplicable. But the message of the Gospels is that God works with the crooked timber of human failure. That was an exceptional moment of redemption. But every day, we have smaller, calmer chances to turn another's life around, to serve, to listen. He asks, how often do we simply not see what is in front of us? How often do we believe that the world's evils, from terrorism to crime to emotional cruelty, are beyond our capacity to change? Or that there is no one in front of us whom we can serve? Smith and Nichols' story is a chastening reminder that we may be wrong. He goes on to write, there's a line in a Leonard Cohen song that has always stayed with me. It kept me going in a bleak moment in my life when I thought, as we all sometimes do, that I couldn't see how good could come out of the wreck I had turned my life into. Forget your perfect offering, Cohen advises. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. We are all fragmented. But that's where grace goes, to the broken, to the, to the crack, to the damage. Jesus says, that's the revolution. Giving what you have, giving grace generously to someone who makes your life hard. Now, why were people so impressed with Ashley? Why were Christians, like, surprised? Why, why didn't Christians just say, well, you know, according to Jesus, that's the normal response of a Christian? Well, why don't we see this happening all the time in our own lives? I think that's an important question. Why aren't these stories of Christians responding like this happening all over the place all of the time? And that's our, our second main question. Why aren't we more engaged in the revolution? You have a one word blank in your notes? The answer is lumber. What? We have huge beams of lumber in our own eyes. Jesus says the reason we are endlessly critical, the reason we write people off instead of forgiving and giving like Ashley is because we have huge planks in our own eyes. But you know what? It's more than that. The problem isn't just that we have these planks. We also don't know that we have them most of the time. Jesus says in verse 42, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye. See, it's not just that you have sin of your own. 
It's that you don't even realize that your own, your own sin. Ashley, thank God by his grace, Ashley knew that she needed God's grace. Ashley knew that she needed the mercy of God. Ashley knew that she was desperate. By God's grace, she knew that she had a plank in her eye. That's what made the difference. But you know what? It's even more than that. It's not just that you don't recognize your own sin. It's that you don't realize that the sin that you see in the other person is small compared to the sin that you don't see in yourself. You don't realize that the sin that you see in that person is small compared to the sin that you can't see in yourself. And why is that? Why are we like experts at seeing the speck in our neighbor's eye? We, I mean, we are so good at that. We can see it from a mile away, right? Why can't we see the fence post in our own eye? Two reasons. Pride and emotional weakness. Pride says, I won't see my plank. Emotional weakness says, I can't. I just can't see my plank. Let me explain. Pride says, I am superior. I am superior to other people. So maybe I'm not perfect, but my sin is nothing compared to theirs. So when I look for a speck in their eye, I reinforce the delusion that I am morally superior. I won't see my plank. And emotional weakness says, I can't handle it. I, I, I feel fragile. I'm barely holding on, like, emotionally. If, if, if I look too hard at my sin, if I admit my sin, I'll be devastated. I, I'm trying really hard, but seeing specks in the eyes of others makes me feel better about myself. I, I just can't see my plank. I can't handle it. And that's why we don't live revolutionary lives. We gotta address our pride and our emotional weakness. Now, it's very important that you understand me right now. I'm not condemning you or judging you or trying to make you feel horrible. I'm not insulting you. When a doctor tells you that your arm is broken, he's not insulting you, he's giving you a diagnosis. A loving diagnosis, okay? And when you have a broken arm, you can't just try harder to not have a broken arm, right? We need, to heal. we need healing. And in this case, we need healing that empowers us to join the revolution. And that's our last question. How can we jo fully join in the, the revolution that God has called you to? Jesus gives us a, an obvious clue in verse 39 when he says, Can a blind man... Lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Jesus is saying that it is crucial to have a teacher and a leader who can see, right? Someone who does not have a fence post in their own eye. 
If you follow somebody with a log in his eye, you will end up in the pit. So what you need for your notes, you need a teacher who forgives and gives even to his enemies. And then you will be like him. And I probably don't need to tell you, I'm not that leader or teacher. Jesus is the only one without a plank in his eye. Jesus is the only one who lived this way perfectly. When his enemies falsely accused him and condemned him to death, he did not judge them. When they stripped him and they spit on him and they beat him to a bloody pulp, he did not condemn them. And when they nailed him to a cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. And then he gave them everything he had, even his very life, so that they might be delivered from the pit and live with God forever. Jesus perfectly lived out the revolution, and the good news is this. The good news is that he lived that life for you. On the cross, he took upon himself all of your lumber. He died so that you could be forgiven and given all that belongs to him. On the cross, he got what we deserved so that you could get all that King Jesus deserved. The love of the Father who now delights in you and sings over you with great joy. There is nothing better than that. And that is yours. By sheer grace. Total grace. Amazing grace. All you got to do is trust Jesus for that. And maybe your prayer this morning is, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. You cannot trust yourself. You cannot trust your own heart. You need to trust Jesus. You need to put your faith and trust in him, who he is, and what he has done for you. That's how you become a Christian. That's how you grow as a Christian. The only solution is the cross. When you understand what happened on the cross for you, it shows you how great your sin is because Jesus had to die for you, but it also shows you how great God's love is for you because Jesus was glad to die for you. When you have the humility, uh, the self-awareness, the insight to see that you were so lost that Jesus had to die for you, then you will be filled with humility. And as a result, you will not be critical and condemning of other people because you will lose your self-righteousness. And then when you see that you are so loved by Jesus, even in spite of your self-righteousness, that Jesus was glad to die for you, then you will be filled with the strength you need to be able to forgive and give even to your enemies. So in closing, let me ask you this. Who do you need to forgive? Who comes to mind? How can you bless them? You know, I know in some of these situations, you know, represented in this room, there are some 
complexities for sure. And it will require some discernment to apply this. I'm not asking you to embrace something unhealthy or to allow somebody to continue to sin against you in a way that that destroys them and continues to cultivate a sinful heart in their life. I mean, we could talk more about that later. My encouragement to you, though, is to ask your brothers and sisters in Christ um, for help in discerning a healthy way to bless the people that you need to forgive. A healthy way to be generous. Examine your heart. Maybe you have a critical spirit. Maybe you don't see it. Or maybe you justify it somehow. Ask your brothers and sisters for prayer. We're a community of grace. Pray for wisdom and courage. And don't just sit here, think about it for a minute, and then forget it calling you to join the revolution to live out the revolution every day to love your neighbors including your enemies because together we are revolutionaries for King Jesus Amen Would you bow your heads with me